Good morning. Welcome to everyone in the venue this morning. So good to see you. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. If we haven't yet met, love to connect with you after the service. Beautiful weekend, beautiful story in Luke chapter 1. We're going to spend the majority of our time here, though, this morning in Luke chapter 1 as we continue with our Advent series, Savoring Christmas. If you're a newcomer here this year, uh, we don't typically do an Advent series, but this year we are. And there's something powerful to slowing down and seeking to savor the, this month, isn't there? We've been trying to do that here for, for this past week, and we're having minimal success. It's much easier to talk about that than it is to do, but we're going to keep talking about it in the hopes that some of it will begin to sink in. Just one additional note related to our Christmas Eve services. In addition to the 4.30 and 6 candlelight services, there will also be 4.30 and 6 candlelight services in the venue as well. So we hope to have plenty of space, unlike last year while we had some trouble, particularly at that 4.30 hour. If you're a consistent, regular attender here, a member here, perhaps you would make the sacrificial decision to go to that later service at 6 o'clock. 4.30 seems to be our most popular service, and last year we even had to turn some families away, uh, which we want to do everything we can to avoid this year. We'll also have an overflow room available for those families in the chapel at 4.30 this year. But if you're able to modify your plans at all for that 6 p.m. service rather than 4.30, that'll probably help many of the newcomers that'll be coming in on Christmas Eve. Just a thought. My wife Susie has a cousin by the name of Jonathan, and he is a brilliant young man. I love talking with him any opportunity that I get. He is a really, really serious, devoted follower of Christ, and he also works in the advertising industry. And he works for a major advertising firm that provides um, first-level promotions and ads for many of the companies that you would be familiar with. And in his most recent project, he's been traveling to Los Angeles on a weekly basis to meet with Hollywood personnel who are seeking to develop this new streaming service. And I was talking to Jonathan about the new streaming service, and he was kind of conflicted about it in terms of what he would be doing for his job. And so he likes to process through these things well with me, and I love to learn from him, love to process through them with him. And he was sharing with me that advertising researchers have learned that Americans are basically living either on their screens or at work, sometimes both at the same time. And these advertising researchers have learned that Americans uh, fill up most of their free time with Netflix and Disney Plus and all the rest, but they've learned that there are still these little chunks of free time that are not yet filled. And so they're asking this question, how can we fill up those chunks that are not yet filled? So my cousin's down there talking about this new possible endeavor to outsource first-rate Hollywood talent to produce five- to seven-minute episodes of various new TV shows in five to seven minutes to fill the very small segments of time in which people would not have 25 minutes to watch an entire sitcom. The times when you're waiting for an Uber. 
you're waiting for a bus, you're in the bathroom, you're in between meetings, and you have five to seven minutes, and that's not enough time to turn on Netflix for 25 minutes, and so how do we fill those seven-minute times with another streaming service to constantly fill the mind with more and more Hollywood? That's the culture we're living in, isn't it? That's the culture that we are living in. And that will be successful, what I just described. When it comes out, that will be successful because of the money and the people that are behind it. That's the culture that we live in. And that's one way to live. And as we know, many people are choosing that way to live, aren't they? But if you choose that way to live, I want to tell you though this morning that you cannot enjoy deep relationships. They're contradictory to each other. If you choose that way to live, you will not enjoy a spiritual depth at Christmas time or any other time. They're contradictory to each other. If you choose to live that way, you will not be able to do what we're talking about in this message series. You will not be able to savor Christmas. Savoring Christmas is, to a certain degree, the opposite of that kind of lifestyle. We actually have to, to some degree, clear the calendar if we want to savor Christmas. As we noted last week, the word Advent, that ancient word Advent means coming. And it's simply the celebration of the fact that Jesus came first as a newborn babe in humility to dwell with us. And one day he will come again in glory as a glorious and righteous king as well. And in between, he offers to come near to you and me even this year. That we can indeed savor this Christmas season. But in order to get there, we have to choose uh, something different. What I want to suggest to you though this morning is to experience the Christmas story and all of the beauty that was intended for us. We must have two things. We must have faith and we must have margin. To experience the Christmas story and all that it's intended, we must have faith and we must have margin. We, we can indeed actually savor Christmas with all the tastes and smells and gifts and relationships and sights and we can savor the beauty of the story of the newborn king. We, we can savor it, but not without faith. And not without margin in our lives. Mary, who we just heard about in Luke chapter 1. If you're not yet there, you can turn there with me now. Mary, who we just, turned about, or who we just heard about, gives us a beautiful, sparkling example of savoring Christmas. She's a wonderful example of faith at this season of year. And we want to look at her story just a bit this morning. Uh, let, me, let me say on the front end that, that over the years, over the centuries, uh, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, uh, Catholics have tended to overemphasize Mary, but most Protestants over the centuries have tended to de-emphasize and under-emphasize Mary, also to our detriment. Catholics over the years have overemphasized Mary in Focusing at this time of the year on an idea that they call her perpetual virginity and her immaculate life. That's not accurate. She was a virgin but before marriage. The text makes that clear. But Jesus had other brothers. 
And moreover, that's not sinful. But she did struggle with sin, just like we all struggle with sin. She made mistakes just like we all make mistakes. She had the same sinful nature, the same selfish nature that each and, of, that each and every one of us have which is part of what makes her such a powerful model for us to look up to, that she's not some other than, she's one of us. Yet she chose faith and discipleship in a beautiful and powerful way. Protestants, on the other hand, have tended to de-emphasize Mary and only focus on her as a good mother. And a good mother she certainly was. She doted on Jesus, and we sing this song sometimes around Christmas time, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Baloney. <laughs> Throw that song away. I know some people say, oh, the old songs are so much better than the new songs. Okay, counterexample number one, there it is. That's a really, really bad old song. He cried. Probably a lot, like every other baby I've ever known. Right? She had to change his diapers, and she was a good, faithful mother. Loved him well. Raised him through his childhood. But also, she's this sparkling example of discipleship for us. When you think about Mary, she's there not only at Jesus' birth, but she's there at numerous points in his ministry. And she's there at the cross. She's one of the few that stuck with them to the end, there at the cross. She's there at the resurrection, one of the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And she's there in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room as the church is born for the very first time in Acts 1 and 2. There is Mary. She is a sparkling example of discipleship. She says things like this, Luke 1, 38, as we just heard read, both in this room and in the venue, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Ooh. Wow. To say that, to mean that, to actually live that, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I mean, if you want to see how great her faith, how great her obedience, how great her worship is, continue to read in the story later on this afternoon, Luke 1, 46 through 56, and you'll see a hymn that Mary wrote that God providentially chose to include in the scriptures. Mary wrote the hymn, and it speaks of God's faithfulness, his power, his mercy, his long-suffering for his people. And you see this worshiper in Mary, though, that we can look up to. She is this extraordinary model of faith and discipleship for women and men alike. We are wise to study her and to learn from her. And she gives us these two beautiful clues for savoring Christmas this year. The first one I've already noted. To experience the Christmas story, you've got to have faith. To actually experience the Christmas story as it's told, you have to have faith. For without faith, the Bible tells us it's impossible to please God, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the starting point to experiencing Jesus. Without faith, it's impossible to experience the Christmas story as it is actually told. Here's what Mary's saying when she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word in me be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. She's saying, thy will be done. 
yes, God, use me. As you wish, I am available to you. I choose to be your humble servant. Yes to God, use me. That's the starting point for discipleship. It's that faith that says yes to God at whatever he brings to us. Now, I know that there are skeptics. There might be people in this room, people asking questions that say, oh, man, that's a, this Christmas story is a big thing to bite off. There's a lot of faith now that's required to believe that Jesus was born to a virgin. And I agree. There's a lot of faith to, to believe in that. But Mary's is not a blind step into the unknown. It's not this big, big blind leap into the unknown. It's not that. She's a thoughtful, intelligent young woman. And she makes this step of faith on the basis of things that she previously knew that were taught to her by her family. She no doubt had parents who taught her about all the stories of their people being enslaved in Egypt for all of those years and God's providence to come in and to rescue them because she was taught those stories by her parents. And she had stories of God's people, the Israelites, being stuck in Babylon for many, many years. And in spite of that, when they were a small number of people, at, under the hands of a great number of people with great armies, God still sustained them, and they got through it, and eventually they went back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt their temple, the, their place of worship. And she knew those stories. Why? Because her parents taught her those stories. And these stories of prophecies that would one day be fulfilled from the Old Testament. And Mary would have known those prophecies because her parents would teach her those prophecies. And she would understand that the only reason the Jews even existed as a people at the time of the birth of Jesus is because of God's generous and merciful hand to make this very small and insignificant people continue to be a people. It was only because of God's providence that they would even be a people. And she knew all of this because her parents would teach her those stories again and again and again. And because of that, she had a faith that had been built up to this point that when the angel appears to her, she says yes. She takes a step, a wise step, based on what she already knows. Yes, it is a step of faith, but it's not a blind leap into the unknown that is devoid of any kind of evidence. It's a step of faith based on some good evidence and God's provision in the past. I love the way Walter Wangren in his wonderful book, Preparing for Jesus, puts it. This is just a series of Advent meditations. And he says it this way. For history was pouring into your womb, dear Mary. The whole history of Israel backward through David, even unto Abraham. Yet you were but a single person, one lone woman. How could a vessel of simple human limitation hold 20 centuries of national endeavor, triumph and failure, sin, atonement, trouble, prayer, and promise, and not burst open? But you would burst, Mary, for heaven itself was swelling within you, and you were the door, and you said yes. This is it. Saying yes to God. Yes, Lord, have your way in me. I can't help but wondering if maybe in this moment, as the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary, she thinks back to Isaiah 7. 
and she considers that prophecy that was no doubt taught to her because it was the long-awaited expectation of every faithful Jew at that time that the virgin shall conceive and be with child and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I can't help but wonder if maybe in that moment as Gabriel is speaking to Mary, her eye twinkles a bit and her cheeks begin to blush a little bit and maybe she thinks, could it be me that Isaiah was talking about seven centuries ago? Could it be me that he was referring to that now his long-awaited promise is fulfilled in me, a simple, ordinary teenage girl? And she said, God, please use me. May it be according to your word, God, please use me. It raises the question for me, how do I reinforce faith for my kids. Perhaps it raises a similar question for you. How do we reinforce what we believe for our kids at this time of year and any other time of year? Psalm 154 puts it this way. One generation commends your works to another generation. They tell of your mighty deeds, O God. The generations are to pass down God's goodness from one to the next uh, that we would convey to those who are coming next, the next generation downstairs, sitting next to us, the ways that God has intervened in our lives and the ways God has intervened in history, which would bolster their faith, that would move them towards steps of faith, steps of saying yes more boldly for God. Because to experience the Christmas story as something other than busyness, or consumerism, which is, make no mistake, the way most Americans experience Christmas, just busyness and consumerism. To experience this season as something more than that requires a deep abiding faith, doesn't it? I mean, to experience the story that God left the glory of heaven to come down to earth and that the way of the world is always getting more powerful and stronger, and the way of every other religion is getting more powerful and possibly reaching up to God, but God chooses instead to reach down to us in the most humble way possible through a baby. That requires faith. So what do you do to inculcate faith? To build into the next generation, that they would grow in that faith when their doubts and their skepticism arises strikes me though that as a parent I can teach my kids some of the 40 some prophecies from the Old Testament that were perfectly fulfilled by Jesus many around his birth in the New Testament it strikes me though that I can teach my kids the ways that God has repeatedly intervened in my life in Susie's life in our family's lives that we can write it down that we, rec we can record it as part of our own history and then communicate it to them that that would potentially build their faith as well it strikes me that we can remind our kids that our faith is not based on a wish. It's based on the reality that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again in time and in space, historically verified, far better explanation of what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that God physically in time and space rose Jesus from the dead. That's a better explanation than any other one out there. So I'm going with that. Well, we teach our kids these things. And then they grow in faith such that they would begin to say, along with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done unto me according to your word. 
telling you to experience the Christmas story as it's intended requires faith. What are we doing to build our own faith? What are we doing to build into our kids' faith? And to experience the Christmas story as it was intended also requires margin. God sent this messenger named Gabriel and noticed that Mary has enough time to interact with the messenger Gabriel. She has enough time to be interrupted by God's messenger. Do you notice that in the text? It's not that she was bored. It's not that people back then had nothing to do. She was betrothed to be married. Anyone else ever planned for a wedding? Is it boring? Okay. Her dear relative Elizabeth is about to have a baby. Anyone else ever planned for a baby shower? Is it boring? No, she's not bored. She's busy. She's a busy woman. But she allows herself, she has the wisdom to allow herself to be interrupted. And as she's interrupted by God, God sends this messenger, an angel, and in case you're wondering, I've never been spoken to by an angel. I'd be open to it. That hasn't happened to me. But God can speak through an angel. He can speak through a donkey if he wants. He can speak through you and me. He can speak through anyone that he chooses. He can certainly speak through his word. And as he does so, Mary interacts with the angel. Mary questions the angel. Mary doubts what she's hearing. But she has time. She has margin to experience God's word for her. Look at verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. If there were any self-evident, obvious words in the Bible, there they are. Mary is greatly troubled, quite obviously. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which was promised way in advance on many occasions, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, he will be the long-awaited Messiah. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And you just see her there through those questions that she's asking. She's troubled, and she's interacting, and she's expressing her doubts to, to the angel. And it's okay to express your doubts. It's okay to express your doubts. I've wrestled with God over many doubts. I still do at times. And that can be a powerful way to actually build faith by wrestling with doubts. God is kind to us in our doubts. We just don't want to be overwhelmed and ruled by our doubts, which is exactly what Mary models for us here. She has some doubts. She has some questions, but she allows herself to be interrupted, and she interacts, and then eventually she says, may your will be done in me. In the margin, God showed up. Beth Moore puts it this way. She says, W-A-I-T, wait upon the Lord. Wait with expectancy. Wait as a watchman on a wall, certain he'll show, not knowing when, but knowing that he will. This Advent season is about waiting. Nothing is more relevant in a culture conditioned to click and get. Faster is not better. Wait Watch, see.
good news. You know, it's hard, ain't it? But that's what she does. She waits and watches. And then in nine months, she sees. And Joseph, too. What a man of exemplary faith was he. They no doubt over these nine months endured ridicule and gossip and probably shaming in their village. And really? You're going to believe that story, Joseph? But she, she trusts in the Lord, and he trusts in the Lord, and together they wait. And after the birth of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, you'll remember Mary's response as the shepherds are hurrying all about, understandably so, but because it's Christmas, the shepherds are hurrying all about. Mary responds this way in chapter 2, 19. Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart a summary statement of where she'd been, both at the conception and after the birth of Jesus. She looks at the birth of Jesus and this promise fall from the angel Gabriel and God's promises way back in Isaiah chapter 7, and she treasures all these things in her hearts. She ponders these things, and she realizes that God is so faithful, so true to what he has said. Here is a woman who is cured of hurry sickness. Wouldn't that be nice? To be able to treasure and ponder what God has done to be cured of the disease of hurry sickness. She is savoring Christmas. She's experiencing what we talked about last week. Christmas. Anyone? Come on, please, somebody. Simplicity. I heard it yelled out from the venue. Let's say it out loud. Christmas. It's possible. It's not impossible. It's not an oxymoron. She's experienced it. We can experience it. Christmas simplicity. Because she's created margin, she's left some room on her calendar, so to speak. We've got our calendar up on the stage next to prepping this simple tree is savoring this simple Christmas calendar. And just imagine as these next few weeks ensue that you choose to say no to some people in order to say yes to God. That you might have to disappoint some people and say no to some pageant or some show or some program or some other get-together in order to carve out space to say yes to God. You might even have to disappoint some other people. Praise God. Say no, disappoint other people in order to sometimes not shortchange God. Why is it that we always say yes to people and no to time with God? At Christmas, we need to evaluate how are you going to do that over the next few weeks? I know of one pastor who is super busy with three teenage kids, and his three teenage kids are in band, and they're each in a sport, and they go across the four winds on a regular basis, and he just got so tired of the reality in life that they were never together, that they would almost never have meals together, that they would almost never have devotionals together anymore, and he's a pastor. So he's saying, this isn't right, this isn't good for our family, we don't have any time together, and we don't have any time going vertically to God together, so what are we going to do? And so he instituted this thing called stair prayer. 
that the kids may be anywhere else with anyone else, but at 9 p.m. each night, they're expected to be at the staircase up from their studies. They can bring their friends with them if they want, but for five or ten minutes, they'll read a single verse together, then they'll hold hands, and they will pray every night at 9 o'clock. You've got to carve it on the calendar. Nobody's going to give it to you. Or perhaps you, know, you decide, I'm going to take up one of these Advent devotions. Or I'm going to take up Matthew 1 through 2 and Luke 1 through 3 and John 1, the Christmas narratives that we have in the scripture. And I'm going to write down on my calendar for the next two and a half weeks, three times a week, how we as a family are going to read these stories and savor them. Perhaps we ask each other, maybe we ask our kids, what stands out to you about Mary and Joseph's response? How were they so bold and courageous? What would you have felt in that moment? We imagine ourselves in the stories and we ask God to build our faith as well. Maybe it's that as the year comes to an end for you, you've been processing through a certain prayer request that you really need to hear from God in a certain way. And so you decide, I'm going to carve out this time to pray around this one request each and every day, anticipating, asking that God will show up. And many of us have this thought about prayer that we just send it up to God, goes through the moon somehow, goes up to the heavens, and then we're done with it. But the biblical portrait of prayer is much different than that. The biblical portrait of prayer is you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking because God is a gentleman and he will not show up where he's not actually wanted and we reveal what we really want by what's on our calendars. And so prayer is this. It's asking. And then it's waiting. It's knocking. And then it's listening. It's seeking. And then it's being found by God. It's writing and reflecting in our journals. It's opening up the scriptures and looking at these passages that we're talking about and reflecting on them and saying, Speak, Lord, for I, your servant, am listening. And I'm not saying that God will speak to you the same way as he did through Mary, but you want to hear from God, don't you? We all desire, we all long to hear from God from time to time, and that is possible for us to hear the gentle, quiet whisper of God. I love the way John puts it, the way Jesus puts it, actually, in John chapter 10. He says, God calls his own sheep by name. Just, just sit on that. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. John 10, 3 and 4. Take a look up on the screen. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has let out all his own sheep, he goes on ahead of them and they follow him. Why? Why do they follow him? Because they know his voice. They've practiced discerning his voice. They know the good shepherd's voice. If you're a follower of Christ today, you are a sheep underneath the good shepherd. No offense. You're a sheep underneath the good shepherd. And the good shepherd has a good voice, and he desires to whisper to you. Like a good father who desires to whisper to his sons and his daughters. This is the right, this is the privilege of every child of God to hear on occasion from Father God. But it requires margin.
Well, let me just wrap up by saying this. I, I know that, that some of us today, as we look at our calendars over the next several weeks, don't have enough margin at all. And others in this room feel like we have way too much margin. And the truth is there are people in this room here today and in the venue who feel overwhelmed by the powerful experience of loneliness. And the last thing you want if you're in that spot is more margin, am I right? The last thing you want is the feeling of other people being at their Christmas parties while I'm left at home alone. And usually when we feel like we have too much margin in our lives, it's because of some family dysfunction or death or loss of a job or some other kind of pain. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're in that spot right now, to consider these two things. If you're in that spot of having too much margin in your life and wishing that there would be more people around you, consider these two. One, go to a care group on Monday night here at the church. 6, 6.30 to tomorrow night, they're doing carols and chance to be together with other people who likewise are voyaging sometimes through pain in life. Not be alone, but to worship God together. It's a beautiful thing. You might consider as well, if you're in a life group and your life group's talking about, we're not going to meet over the holidays. We have too much going on. You might be the one who's bold enough to say, can I get together with one of the families each week? Or maybe we could meet and just have a meal together, do something we're already doing, just do it together. Because I'm so lonely right now, I can't handle any more margin in my life. Maybe others in the life group would be cognizant enough of them to invite some of them in because we're a life group, because we're a church family, because we're a flock underneath the great shepherd. And the number two, I want to say to you, if you're in that spot of feeling like too much margin, too much loneliness, and I can't handle any more thought of more margin, Adrian, please, in faith, consider this, that God tends to show up and speak to us in the moments of our pain. I've witnessed this again and again in my own life. I'm not speaking down at you. I can empathize with you. In my moments of greatest pain, those are the specific times that God has specifically showed up and spoken to me, whispered to me, when I have taken advantage of the margin, redeeming the time, as opposed to filling up every five to seven minute segment with more Hollywood, if you know what I'm saying. And it's in those moments that we can say, word of God, speak. Would you be for me, Emmanuel, God with us? Would you be for me, my mighty God? Would you be for me, my wonderful counselor? Would you be for me, my everlasting father? Would you be for me, my prince of peace? What I need right now is the presence of a good, loving God and father who will draw near to me in loneliness. So whether you have a lot of margin or not nearly enough, this Christmas season. I urge you to intentionally, I pray for you that you would intentionally circle some space on the calendar that this is time for redeeming Christmas. This is time for savoring it yet again. This is time to experience my God who loves me so much that he came down even for me 
by name. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the faith of this young woman, Mary. We thank you for her obedience, her model of discipleship, her willingness to interact with you, her decision to follow you. It's through this young maiden that your plan for the reconciliation of the world came about. We beg you, Father, that you would help us to follow her example just a bit more this month. That you would help us to clear the calendar a little bit with the hope of meeting with you. Father, would you please teach our hearts and teach our mouths to respond in the same way. May it be done to me according to your word. Thy will be done. Yes, my God. May we be a church that responds to you with yes. The simple, obedient step of faith with whatever you're putting on our hearts even today. May we be a people that creates space to dwell with you. Because in the presence of God is fullness of joy and life forevermore. Father, I pray specifically this morning for those who are hurting this season, those who feel lonely and overwhelmed by the pain of this season when it feels like other people have family and friends around, but I don't. Would you meet them there? Father, I pray that your son Jesus would be their Emmanuel. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be their wonderful counselor. And I pray, God, that you would rise up your people to surround them with your love, that we would recognize God is for us, God is with us. And this is a season not to be missed, not to be mourned, not to be consumed, but a season to be savored with the living God who has come.